This is Attica Locke, and you're listening to Writer Types. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. I'm Don Winslow. Hey, I'm Lou Bernie. This is Lawrence Black. This is Rachel Housel Hall. Really good question. Well, that's an interesting question. Excellent question. I'm Alifair Burke, and this is Writer Types with Eric Beatner and S.W. Louder. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. I'm Eric Beatner, and with me is S.W. Loudon. Steve, who do we have with us today? It's another great show, Eric. Author Blake Crouch talks about what he thinks writer types is really all about. Tackling the big questions of identity and reality, fundamental questions of our existence. And Brian Panowicz tells us about his typical day when he's not writing a book. I mean, I can step outside and kill people, and it makes me feel better. Plus, we have a super secret guest stopping by a little later to talk about our favorite topic, Steve, the meeting of crime fiction and music. So, Eric, what's been on your radar recently? Well, I want to talk about Dave Zeltzerman for a minute here because Dave's a friend of the show. We, we interviewed him once, and I've long been a fan of Dave's work. And you and I have talked about this. He recently sort of announced to the writing community that he's hanging it up. He, he, he went back to the working world, got a, a nine-to-five job again, and it just became too hard and frustrating for him to to make a living and, and to go through the soul-crushing defeats of the publishing world. Uh, and it both, it, it made me sad, but yet I I kind of understand where where he's coming from. And if it's not, if it's making you miserable, then Godspeed to you, then you, you should you should quit. But one thing it did do was make me go back to my shelf and dig into the couple of Dave Zeltzerman's books that I've been kind of holding in reserve. And I I read Outsourced, which was one of his earliest books that I've had on my shelf for a long time, but had had for some reason never gotten to. I think again, like you're sort of holding it back like a piece of candy that you want to eat later. And my goodness, I don't know why I slept on this book so long. It instantly became one of my absolute favorites of his books and just a stark reminder of how damn good he is. And so Dave Zeltzerman is a writer that I'm gonna miss having new books from. Uh, I hope that he's happier now with his decision. He said he's going to keep writing some shorts and do and kind of go back to that vibe of doing it just for himself. Uh, you know, so I, I think that it's never too late for readers, especially if you love just great modern noir tales and crime thrillers. You cannot do better than Dave Zeltzerman's work. I would highly recommend Outsourced. Uh, his small crimes is uh, just a masterpiece. And we talked to him about the film that they made on Netflix adapted from it, which I think is wonderful. He's also done some really remarkable horror. Uh, He's just a fantastic writer and I'm going to absolutely miss having new books to look forward to. Well, what's I've been following along on social media as well. And, and I've really appreciated his honesty and really his thorough honesty in recounting his journey and his career um, and letting people know what the pitfalls might be for them. And, you know, I've se- it's been interesting to see some writers respond negatively to his positioning, which has all been very neutral. He's saying, he's not saying not to publish. Right. He's just saying, you know, if you've got stars in your eyes and you think this is how you're going to get rich and famous, here are the realities of the publishing world. And, and I, for one, have really appreciated uh, benefiting from his wisdom and experience. 
Absolutely. I mean, yeah, because because he's a guy like you, you look at him and you think, oh, he's he's a success. He's been publishing for a decade. He's got, I don't know, 15 or more books. He's had a film adaptation. Uh, looking at it from the outside, you would think that he's living the dream, but he he's being very forthright with the struggles and the day to day realities of publishing in this era. And yeah, it's it's been it's been enlightening it without being defeatist, which I, I appreciate. Yeah, I love the capper too, that after he'd been posting for a couple of weeks about how he's going back to a full-time job outside of writing, that then he also posts, I just got my 20th short story accepted to, I believe, Ellery Queen magazine. Yeah. Um, so it's like, you know, a little glimmer of hope for fans of his writing that, you know, he's gonna try to escape, but we're gonna keep dragging him back in. Uh, you can't get off that easy, Dave. <laughs> Well, Steve, I know way at the top of your list of favorite books from last year was Dark Matter by Blake Crouch. Yeah, it's definitely a favorite. And Blake is back with a new one called Recursion, which is even more of a mind bender than Dark Matter, if that's even possible. Yeah, we, we both read it and both loved it. Yeah, I'm definitely guessing this will top my list in 2019. Uh, we talked to Blake from his mountain home in Colorado about the new book. Our regular recording method suffered some technical glitches, um, so apologies for the poor sound quality, but we'll talk to Blake Crouch any way we can get him. Okay, first question, Blake, and I think maybe the most important question, what the hell did I just read? <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry. That's a hard one to answer. I mean, it's definitely a thriller, but then it's also kind of a, a sci-fi thing. I, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that it's a time travel novel, but it's also kind of a deep meditation on loss and and relationships. It's, it's all over the map in the best possible way. <laughs> I wanted to write something that was, it almost reflected the, Kind of the, the nature of the story. I mean, it's a you know, the narrative itself is very twisting and serpentine, and it bends back on itself multiple times, and and just does all these all these weird structural things. So I think he read me trying to do my most uh, experimental thing I've ever done. I mean, there's tons of action and a mind-bending puzzle to figure out, but you also tackle some pretty heavy questions about morality. How did you strike that balance? I think it just comes out in the in the end through multiple you know drafts and and just you know working the pages over and over and over. I, I'm pretty sure that balance was not there in the beginning. You know, it's it's something that I think kind of develops at, as you spend more and more time on a book. I mean, and this one took me almost two years to write, which is the most time I've ever spent well, on any project. Well, I can imagine. I mean, I, there's a lot to wrap your head around in this book, and there, there's a lot of timelines to keep straight. I mean, it was a, it was sort of a, a, a tortured journey to get there. I, I wrote the first draft and kind of realized I had to toss out the last half of the book, like 45,000 words, because it really wasn't firing on all cylinders. It wasn't, it wasn't doing all the things I wanted it to do. It was cool. It was a nice, it was a nice premise, but it never really left orbit. If that makes sense, um, and I don't know. I, I thought the, I thought the concept was was special enough that it that it warranted really maximizing everything I could do with it. 
I definitely read this book as a fan of your writing, but I'm also an author. Uh, it seems like it would be easy as an author to be tempted into focusing too much on the sci-fi elements. Is that what was happening in those earlier versions of the book? Yeah, to an extent, yes. I don't, I don't think I had really done Helena. I hadn't done her character justice in, in, in that first draft. And, and that was one of the big things I, I did in, in kind of the, the last huge, huge Herculean effort of, uh, you know, rewriting the end of the last half was to try to make her journey as, as powerful as, as Barry's. I mean, finding that balance between the sci-fi engine and, and, and the emotional engine is, is something I've been started to do it. I think probably in Wayward Pines, more in dark matter. And I just really wanted to not lose that in recursion because I think recursion assumes that, that I have very, very smart readers, which I do. <laughs> And there's a lot of plot to keep up with. But if that's all it is, then it's going to be sort of a hollow, emotional journey for the reader. I mean, I think what hopefully people will walk away and want to tell you know their friends and, and family to read the book for is, is not really the sci-fi stuff. It's the character stuff. It's it's the big, you know, fundamental questions of our existence that had a lot of fun tackling. Well, I definitely think you succeeded because I kept turning pages to find out what was going to happen with the people, not necessarily the the memory chair. Like I have kids, so I felt for Barry. Uh, my mom has Alzheimer's, so I felt for Helena. I mean, I wanted to know how these characters turned out. No, no, thank you, thank you. You brought up Dark Matter, and I and I really love that book. In my mind, it seems like Dark Matter and Recursion are of a piece. Like you've gone down a very specific rabbit hole. I'd love to know how you see the relationship between these two books. Well, I definitely see them as sort of two sides of the same coin, if that makes sense. And they're both tackling the big questions of identity and reality in recursion time and memory in dark matter, the notion of, of the path not taken. Dark matter was my, oh shit, I'm getting divorced book. And... <laughs> Recursion was, okay, I'm on the other side of that now. How, how am I making sense of, of just the grief from that loss and and moving forward and then not getting kind of pulled down in, in regret and nostalgia and, and all that kind of stuff. I was just struck as I was in the weeds with, uh, with Barry, especially by just how our memories can, they can sort of wound us also because we can kind of keep circling the same painful memories. And how do you break out of that and, and kind of get on with things? And I did go down that rabbit hole, but I, I think I've, I think I'm coming back out of the rabbit hole for, for my next book. I'm not hundred percent sure what it is, but it's going to be not covering sort of the, the nature of reality uh, material that these two have been focused on. Well, you, you've so completely covered that topic with these two books. So I, I can't imagine it would be very easy to write a third on the same theme, although nothing would surprise me with, with your writing. But, you know, I mean, it, looking at the nature of memory and, and, you know, loosely describing this as time travel to whatever degree, you know, given the opportunity, would you ever go back in time yourself? No. Um, the same reason I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't mess around with the multiverse and alternate uh, realities. I think it's uh, we kind of have to walk the path along and do the best we can. There's not, there's not a cheat code. If there were a cheat code, you know, you would wind up probably in like one of the third acts of my book, which would be no bueno. Well, Dark Matter uses the catchphrase, are you happy with your life? 
and Recursion uses Memory Makes Reality. Did these two books start with those as central premises? I mean, how do you even dive into books like these? With Recursion, it did start with a question. I want to do something bigger than Dark Matter. You know, Dark Matter is a very intimate and personal single-player journey of Jason Dustin trying to find his way home. And then I knew I wanted to do something bigger in scope. And with Recursion, I wanted the stakes to be global as well as personal. So it just started out like, I mean, what is the most precious thing we have? And then, I mean, the answer came pretty quickly. And it's memory. If you take our memories away, you don't just change who we are or strip away our identity. There's some argument to be made that memory is what reality is made of. Like you and I are having this, this phone conversation, but imagine that we were all, you know, sitting across the table from each other. So my words are coming to you at the speed of sound, my image at the speed of light. And our brain does this really cool thing where it, it holds the first, it holds the image and waits for the sound, like the sound file to catch up and it syncs them and presents them to our brains, to our perception as a, as a single unified um, piece of information, almost like syncing up you know, audio and video. But that means that essentially in all of our interactions and our experiences of what we think are the present is this tape delayed reconstruction that's about a half second off of the present, which means that we never experience the present, which means that memory is all we ever experience. Even when we think we're experiencing this present moment, we're experiencing a tape delayed reconstruction of it. And if that's true, the memory is the building blocks of reality and is in a lot of ways more fundamental even than time. Well, when you say it like that, it all sounds so simple. <laughs> I mean, but I, I do think you, you did a great job of taking this really complicated, high-minded concepts and grounding them and simplifying them in a way that uh, I do think readers will ha- have no problem whatsoever following along with the big ideas that you're presenting to them. If you've read Dark Matter and Recursion, it would be easy for some readers to assume that Blake Crouch is a guy who lives entirely inside his head. What the hell do you do for fun? <laughs> oh, I, I mean, I, I live in a beautiful, beautiful part of the country in, the, in Colorado. So I'm outdoors a lot whenever it's not snowing and if it's snowing, trying to ski. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I really try to sort of embrace just the, the physical, natural world and, and, and use that as a, as a way to get out of, out of my head on, on this stuff. But as you can imagine, it, a book like this, it never really leaves you while you're writing it. I mean, it sort of just haunts you constantly. I noticed in the book that you name check a couple of our crime writing peers, great writers like Sheila Redling and Matthew Iden. Any chance there'll be a Beatner and Loudon in your next book? You know, maybe two crime writers traveling back in time and actually becoming rock stars in their 20s? I mean, I, I can't, uh, I can't promise you that um, that will necessarily be your fate. Um, but you know, yeah, you guys are wanting to be in the next book. We can, we can definitely work that out. I just, I can't promise uh, your fates will be kind. Could work. My only problem with that is it's almost too unbelievable. Like the audience just wouldn't buy it. Well, it's sci-fi, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Eric. He's a great author and everything, and I, I really appreciate his deep ideas, but I, I kind of like my rock star idea better. 
it sounds like no matter what happens, we're not going to make it out of a book alive. <laughs> but I mean, but we're rock stars first before we die, right? Oh yeah, rock stars never die. <laughs> no, I guess he'll have to make us twenty-seven. <laughs> All right. Well, Steve, before we get any further, I want to talk about your new release because you have a brand new novella that's out called That'll Be the Day. It's subtitled A Power Pop Heist. And uh, I've read it. It's fantastic. But I want to let's talk about the interesting way that this little project came about because it started with another book that you've been working on for a while, right? So Rare Bird Books, which published the Greg Salem trilogy, uh, is run by a musician named Tyson Cornell. And one of the things that he and I bonded over was our shared love of music. Um, and we talked back then about the possibility of me working on some essay collections or nonfiction books. And late last year, he finally asked me if I would co-edit a power pop essay collection called Go All the Way that I've been working on for the last nine months with Paul Myers. Um, and so that got me reconnected with a bunch of power pop bands that I hadn't really thought about in a long time. Bands that I've loved over the years, but, you know, just being able to focus on this particular genre so hard for so long was a lot of fun because I kind of felt like I was going down a rabbit hole. Well, it's a deep rabbit hole to go down, and and power pop is definitely one of my favorite genres that's that's stuck with me and is still as exciting now as I think it was in my teens. But okay, for for the lay person who might wonder exactly what we mean when we say power pop, if if someone asks you what is power pop, is there like one track or one album that you'll play with them and say, ah, this is it? Well, I think the one everybody knows right away is My Sharona by The Knack. Because yes. I think when people think about power pop, they think about those skinny tie bands in the late 70s and early 80s. But it's got a much richer history than just that specific moment, even though that's the most famous. I mean, it's really just melodic guitar pop that is sometimes jangly. And it takes a lot of inspiration from the early music of like the Beatles and the Who and the Beach Boys and the Birds. It starts like in the 70s with like Big Star and Badfinger and the Raspberries then you have kind of the, the heyday, which is like the knack, the records, the romantics, the bangles, the shivers. You get into the late 80s, early 90s with Teenage Fan Club, Matthew Sweet, Jellyfish. It's this all-encompassing genre that fans of power pop just argue incessantly about. Like they can't even always decide uh, what the definition of power pop is, much less whether or not a band is power pop. And actually, it was that sort of like deep love and knowledge about power pop and the ways that power pop fans discussed the genre and their favorite bands and songs that led me to create That'll Be The Day, which focuses on two brothers who used to be in a power pop band, and now they're reunited to go steal a very rare 45 from a collector in Memphis. Yeah, and it it goes wonderfully off the rails from there. I mean, the thing I loved about the book, I mean, hey, it's it it's definitely a novella. It's very short, so it's it's a quick read. So you know, very definitely one of those one sitting reads, but uh, it's it works in around this great crime story and this great sort of family story. You have all these references to bands and and to you know the guys collecting all this rare Beatles memorabilia and all this this stuff that's wrapped up around power pop. So I think there's a lot of people out there who probably are power pop fans, but don't even realize it. 
it's been interesting sending the book out for blurbs and reviews because a lot of people are writing back to me and saying they absolutely loved it. They read it in one sitting, but they knew nothing about 95% of the bands that I was talking about. And they still enjoyed it because the heist is there and because the relationship between the brothers has some kind of interesting dynamic. Well, let me ask you this. When you were researching uh, for the Power Pop book, the nonfiction book, did you come across any new discoveries for you and bands that you hadn't previously known, but then ended up falling in love with? Uh, there's a band called the records that uh, I've kind of really fallen hard for. Uh, they're an English band. And there's another English band called Bram Tchaikovsky that I also really loved. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's been fantastic. And really I had no intention of writing a crime novel. It was, this was just about this essay collection, but you know, crime mind turns on and you know you come across a story where you're like oh there's this rare quarryman 45 that's out there that paul mccartney doesn't want anybody to own and i'm like wow what if these two guys went to steal that and then next thing you know i'm writing the 17,000 word novelette and here we are all right well I, we always ask people about music and i realized that i hadn't gone down to the the foundation of music with you yet. So I'm gonna ask you some of the basic questions that every pair of friends should know about each other. Oh boy. What was the first album you bought with your own money? I think it was Kiss's Destroyer. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> was that one of those ones where like, did you know about it and went uh, seeking it? Or I think of any album of the 70s, that one may have the cover that probably gave more kids whiplash walking through a record store to go, what, wait, what is that? I have to own it. I had older brothers who were total meddlers. Ah. So I was very young. I was listening to a lot of classic rock and hard rock and heavy metal. So Kiss was in my wheelhouse, but I, I definitely needed to own it, you know, because of the album cover. But can I tell you, one of the biggest disappointments of my entire life was when I bought my first kiss record because i had i did not have older brothers and i hadn't i had neighbors back in iowa who were big kiss fans and kiss were also kind of they were kind of everywhere in the 70s you can you you couldn't miss it but by the time i sort of had my own money enough to and was getting around to buying my own records it was it was definitely not the first record i bought but it was among probably the first 10 records that i ever bought i was like i'm gonna go get the new kiss record and i felt so cool because i was like nine years old uh and then it happened to be kiss dynasty <laughs> which is their disco album yeah still and, great though still oh, great. no not <laughs> great then not great now i was made for i put on i was made for loving you and i was expecting you know king of the nighttime world and uh, forever shattered my expectations <laughs> <laughs> that ain't right it's funny too though like when you listen back to that stuff uh, you know i remember thinking is so much of kiss was so hard but they're kind of a power pop band too. Like totally. you can totally hear the British invasion influence and like all their stuff's pretty dancey and really not that fast and loud. And you just kind of go like, wow, was I just falling for all the hype? Yeah. <laughs> yeah whatever works. <laughs> all right. First concert you ever went to on your own, like not that someone brought you to someone that you said, I want to go to that. And you went. Oh, good. Well, that's actually... You saved me from admitting that my brother took me to see Ario Speedwagon when I was 11. So that 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 kind of technically is my first concert, but that was of his choosing. I'm trying to think. I think really, I think I went and saw Seven Seconds, the 
hardcore band at Fender's Ballroom when I was 15 or 16 because prior to that, I went to mostly went to concerts with my brothers. Well, how did these metalhead brothers end up taking you to an audio speedwagon show? <laughs> uh, they were just kind of in, they were just kind of, you know, hard rock, 70s rock. They were listening to a lot of KLOS here in Los Angeles. Can I make you jealous here for a minute? Yeah, you always do, Eric. My my first concert that I went to of my own accord, The Kinks. Oh, I'm Spe very jealous. Speaking of power pop. Yeah, those guys are fantastic. Well, I'm grateful that I got an early look at That'll Be The Day, and uh, I think everyone should pick this up and, and read it. Like I say, it's just something you can read you know, on the bus, on the subway, on your lunch break. It's, it was a whole heck of a lot of fun. You're going to find maybe some bands that you're going to want to seek out. And I'm really looking forward to the Power Pop uh, nonfiction book when it drops. That one comes out from Rare Bird Books this October, and it's called Go All the Way. I think people are really going to dig it. All right, Steve. Well, enough enough about you. For Pete's sake, let's get to another guest. Yeah. Well, this next guest is someone we've wanted to have on the show for a really long time. Yeah, well, we've also been waiting for his next book to come out for a long time, but it's finally here. Brian Panowich is the award-winning author of Bull Mountain, a book that both you and I loved. And now the sequel, Like Lions, is finally available. Now, we talked to Brian from his home in Georgia, where his books were set, and the conversation ran off the rails a few times, and we ended up talking for like almost a half hour. Not really a bad way to spend a day. No, certainly not. Brian, welcome to the show. Like Lions has been a long time coming. The book has been finished for a while. We just haven't had a chance to see it. And it's been finished so long that I was anxious enough that I actually bought this thing a year ago in the UK edition. Now, in this long pause between finishing the book and the release, have you ever been tempted to go back in and just sort of start revising and poking at it again? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, because it... I mean, I'm sure, you know, when you finish something and you put it down you say, okay, well, I'm done. That's the best I can do it. And then you pick it up like six months later and say, oh, this is utter shit. I know that I can do better than this. Yeah, so that happened to me several times. I had to like, like physically keep myself away from the book. Once it was bought though, once St. Martin's bought it, that was, it was relatively simple because they wouldn't allow me to, to touch it. So at that point it didn't matter. I could do whatever I wanted to, to it and they weren't going to pay attention. So. <laughs> we figured out how to deal with you so just right 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 put your we, foot down and say no we have the ms brian so you know you can do whatever you want but we're gonna <laughs> we're not gonna email you back <laughs> complicated family histories seem to be something that you like to write about in both bull mountain and like lions uh, what the hell kind of darkness do you have in your background that you're trying to tackle all this and do therapy in front of everybody? You know what? It, it, that's exactly what it is. Um, <laughs> it, it is. It is me working out my own grief and problems through fiction. And I, you know what? I know that everybody does it, but nobody wants to admit it. I'm telling you up front that that's exactly what I do. I say, wow, my shit is whacked out and I got to do something about it. And so I, I turn it into a fictional story and kill people. And it makes me feel better. <laughs> I guess that beats the alternative. <laughs> well, right. I mean, I could step outside and kill people, you know, <laughs> but um, that that would probably end up counterproductive for my family, you know. <laughs> Are you conscious of that though? When you went into these story arcs, no, most no. Of the, no. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, no. I 
I have to actually have it pointed out to me sometimes. Like my wife and I went through a really rough patch after Bull Mountain came out because I was gone a lot. And like it, my life shifted because I was the housewife. You know, I was a fireman, you know, who stayed home with the kids and only worked 10 days a month. But now I was all of a sudden doing that. And all of my free time was out promoting this novel. And so so we went through this, I don't know, six month period where we weren't getting along very well. You know, she was having trouble adjusting and I was having trouble adjusting. And after she read Like Lions, she was like, oh, my God, Brian, you put our whole marriage in this. <laughs> and I, I said, what are you talking about? No way. And I went and I was like, oh, shit, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I did. I did. I totally did that. And um, it, it had to be pointed out to me that I, I worked out my own therapy through, you know, Clayton and Kate. Well, you, you write these tough guys, and like you say, you had this sort of manly job as a as a firefighter. But I've I've seen you when you talk about your wife or, or your daughters, and you just turn into a pile of mush. <laughs> I mean, do you think that being in touch with that emotional side helps you write these more fully formed emotional characters? I hope so, man. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I truly hope that is the case. But I do know um, that I I am incredibly uh, sensitive to my characters to where they live breathe and and i i'll get emotional reading back on something that i wrote a year ago and it's fictional and it's about people who aren't real and i created the conflict but i'll still i'll still lose my shit reading it in front of people but uh yeah i think i think that it helps um i think that it helps to to be a um i don't know an emotional wreck in order to be a good writer <laughs> Is that what you're asking me, Eric? Basically, yeah, because I'm the opposite. My wife looks at me and she's like, you are a robot. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't cried. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if my kids have ever seen me cry. I hope that maybe I can channel that onto the page. And that's my excuse is like, oh, no, you, you got to read the books. It's all there. <laughs> no, man, I'm the exact opposite. My wife will say, will you get your shit together? There are people looking at us. <laughs> It's funny too, because like the but my very first review in in the New York Times, I was so excited to get it. And for for Bull Mountain, the very first sentence was Brian Panowich is no wuss. <laughs> if she only knew, if she only knew. And I think that my wife actually said that shit when she wrote. She was like, "Oh my god, really." <laughs> So you referenced your career as a fireman. Are there any similarities in your mind between firefighting and being a crime writer? Um, no, no, not <laughs> at all. <laughs> None. Um, you know, you see a lot of ugly shit. You don't, as a fireman, you don't necessarily just put out fire. You know, you, you go to every single wreck. Um, there's tons of medical calls you go to, drownings, all kinds of horrible shit that you see all the time. And it's always the worst day ever for somebody. And so pulling that material and putting it onto a page, I feel like it's disrespectful to, to the people who are actually going through it. So I've tried to stay away from all of the things that, that I've experienced as a fireman. And so I guess as a crime writer, um, when I am tempted to, to, to use some of that material, um, it, makes, it, it does make me a better crime writer because I stay away from that and I have to create something in my brain as opposed to something that I've actually seen. Most people probably wouldn't think it's a big deal because he changed the names and places and it's all brand new. But for me, it's it's like I, I saw them go through that. And so I can't I can't do that now. Fire. 
on the other hand, is different. And like Lions, there's a huge house fire. It plays a pivotal pivotal part in the story, and that's not really spoiling anything for anybody, man. If you've seen the UK version, there's a big-ass fire on the cover. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, I, I felt like that was okay to use because fighting fire and the technical like how-to of it is, is something that I've been able to use. And I waited to use it in my second book as opposed to you know using what I know for my first novel. And I, I think I, I pulled it off pretty well. No, definitely. I could tell reading that that the details were were authentic in in right. that stuff. But uh, I mean, you, all the rest you, of it's bullshit. But that that was <laughs> <not> real. <laughs> that's why it stood out as being very different. From the rest like, of oh it. shit, shit, shit. Okay, well that that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so the area of Bull Mountain in in both books is it's set sort of near where you live in Georgia. I mean, are are these the kind of people that you're seeing every day around you? Absolutely not, man. Absolutely not. I mean, I write, good. I, I write fiction, Eric. If I had ran into these people, I'd be scared to death. I mean, we've gone over the worst thing already. So, I mean, I know that I know that if uh, if these people ever came into my life, I wouldn't last 10 seconds. What I do is I'll take a character that I think is interesting in real life and just r- ramp that up to 11 or 12. And, and that's how I end up with these evil bastards. Um, like my, my father-in-law, he's the sweetest man in the world. He's just a great guy. But he looks a little like he'd kill you if if he, if he came off the wrong way, you know. Um, <laughs> and so I, I took that image and said, OK, well, what if his his personality actually fit the way he looks when you first meet him? And that's how I would come up with like Cooper Burroughs, you know. I, I have to remind people that North Georgia and the foothills of Blue Ridge are, is awesome and you should come and see it because it's a wonderful place, man. And the people are great. They're not going to throw you and stuff you in a hole and cover you with pine straw. It's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> so, all right, if, if you look at your father-in-law and and think that, t- take a good long look at me right now, do I uh, inspire you as a sort of a criminal type or? Absolutely not, Eric. Absolutely not. Um, you <laughs> Like a, like a busboy or something? No, you're more like a dispatcher maybe. Um <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're the you're the guy who brings in the monkey bread to the office. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> My wife is a very good baker. Let's let's have some of that monkey bread, brother. And, and no, that, that's you. Like everybody like loves you because your wife can cook and she's always sending food to the office. And you're like, hey, hey, look what I got! And they're all like, they all dig in and then they all just leave. And you're like, dude, man, they only use me for my food. This is cutting a little too close to home. <laughs> If we're on the topic of Bull Mountain, uh, it's a book that I've recommended to a lot of people. The shorthand I use, because a lot of my friends and I really love music, is I tell people it's as if Steve Earle's Copperhead Road came to life. Um, do, do you take inspiration from music? Like, what what role does music play in your writing? Oh, my God, man. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I always take that Steve Earle as a compliment, because that's that's an incredible compliment to be compared to a maestro like that even more so than a lot of the writers that I've been compared to. <laughs> um, and, and that's not to say that he's not one of a fantastic writer because his book of short stories is incredible. The uh, dogwood flowers. It's yep. good. Anyway, uh, if you, if you look at the paperback of that, I talked Putnam into allowing me to, to give recommendations for music to go along as a soundtrack for Bull Mountain. If I'm, you know how some writers will take uh they'll, they'll write out like a bio for each character. Like, you know, and give themselves some background history on this character so that they come alive a little bit more in their head when they're writing them. 
for me, it's it's music, 100%. If I want to get into a zone with Clayton Burroughs, then I just go out in the Bronco and drive around and listen to classic country music for a while, man, like outlaw honky-tonk shit, and that puts me into Clayton Burroughs' head. If I want to get into a different character, like Simon Holly for me was punk music, man. He he would he listened to a lot of Ramones and New York punk, and that because he was so outside the mountain. So to get myself into a like a place with that guy, I had to go to a different area. So I just used punk music to get me there. So mu music is incredibly important to my process. It's like it's almost hand in hand. If I didn't have it, I don't know if I could write as fully as I do. Well, I, I'm disappointed. I thought you were going to jump up and go grab a guitar. Oh, man, you know, I would, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> <laughs> well, for you listeners at home, just take solace in the fact that as soon as we hung up, Brian went and picked up a guitar and played a very slow and mournful ballad by himself. <laughs> Steve, I think we have yet another band to start, but this time uh, it's going to be a country band. This time? I think we can cover every genre of music depending on who we talk to. I think David Swinson is going to be in our punk band. Uh, Brian Panowich is going to be in our uh, outlaw country band. Dan Malman is the toaster for our ska band. Exactly. We could, have, we could headline our own music festival. Well, just like that, another episode has come and gone. But our episode next time will not be over so quickly. It's our big summer spectacular before we go on a short break for July and August, Steve. But we'll have a supersized episode, including a Summer Reads preview for you next time. But what did we learn this time, Steve? We learned that Blake Crouch is going to write a novel exclusively about us and turn us into rock stars in the 90s. And then kill us. Yeah, well, I, I think it'd be worth it. <laughs> well, Brian Panowich taught us what we should all remember most about him. Brian Panowich is no wuss. Well, thanks to all of our subscribers and loyal listeners, and that could be you, you know, you just click on that subscribe button. And we are also very close to topping a thousand followers on Twitter, so help us get over that milestone, and, and I think we win a prize, I'm not sure. But this show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Yeah.